Very good. How the yes was one. I love the title, by the way. I think it's great. Welcome back to How the Yes Was Won, a podcast about the Eighth Amendment. In the previous episode, we covered the 1983 referendum to introduce the Eighth Amendment. We spoke with those involved in the anti-amendment campaign who were fighting to keep it out. But what happened after the referendum? People in Ireland still needed abortions. That didn't stop. The amendment was sold as something to protect women, protect mothers and protect babies. This was never going to be the case. The Eighth Amendment was bad for women. It didn't mark a sign of progress or improvement for women's lives within the structures of the state. It only highlighted the hypocrisy within society. It was only acceptable for women to be pregnant within marriage. Women who became pregnant outside of marriage were still routinely sent to the now infamous mother and baby homes run by the state and the Catholic Church. We recommend the BBC Radio 4 podcast The Home Babies to learn more about these. The shame surrounding single motherhood was so pervasive that within a couple of years of the introduction of the Eighth, we had the story of Anne Lovett, a 15-year-old girl who concealed her pregnancy and who died shortly after giving birth alone in a grotto, along with her infant son. We had the story of the Kerry Babies, where a woman was wrongly accused of murdering a baby washed up on a beach, simply because people in the town had seen her pregnant. The inquest into the baby's death became a public humiliation for the woman by the Gardaí, scrutinising her sexual behaviour and her menstrual cycle. Activists like Mary Gordon assumed that nothing would change after the 8th was introduced, that they could still go on providing the information and referrals to the UK for people who could afford it. But unfortunately, they discovered that the situation was much worse than they expected. The most draconian interpretation of what the amendment might mean was the one that was taken in terms of legislation. So it actually was the case that women were not entitled to any information as a result of the abortion referendum. Because in a way, nobody thought certainly not the right to choose group, that there was going to be any change in the practical situation for women in Ireland anytime soon, or even in our lifetimes, that women would be be able to have abortions here. But there hadn't been any problem with providing information, or at least the well woman had been providing that information. If women knew where to go, they could get it. And after the referendum, I think organisations like the Family Planning Clinic and so on had to stop giving out that referral information. So for that reason, Women's Information Network set up a service, a telephone service with information. And this this leaflet is actually all about exactly what to expect and where to go with addresses and, you know, amounts of money that it would cost and all that kind of practical, very practical information. And that was what we produced in order to give women access. You know, I mean, it was, such, it, it, it was like a reduction back to something even more primitive than what we might have been thinking about in the, in the early 80s, where we thought we were fighting for women's rights. Now we're talking about we're just trying to help women who are in this terrible position. And we got a group called the Dublin Resource Centre in Temple Bar, when Temple Bar was just full of old warehouses and things before it all got changed. It was going to be turned into a bus station. And we got a small little room that was like the width of a person almost, with a window and a door. And we had a table and we had a cupboard. And in the cupboard we had a a phone and we had a book with all the information and a book for writing down details. And twice a week we would go in there And we were given the room for nothing by the DRC. And we would go in there and we would answer, answer it. And we left, we had a message, an answering machine attached to the phone. So if anybody rang at any other time, they would be told to ring back on Wednesday Wednesday evening or Saturday afternoon. 
And we did that for the best part of 10 years until we weren't needed any longer, until the changes with further referenda meant that information was now available. And in some ways, that's the thing I'm proudest of because it really, you know, it, it was really simple, but very effective. Getting the number out was the main problem. And anarchists and people with spray paint, you know, cans and things would go around women's toilets and spray the number. Or if there was a march about something else, people would carry banners with our number on it. And in that way, people did in the know, get to know who to ring. And and then we were able to give them really practical information and and support them in, in whatever decision they wanted to make. And somebody has the book with the records. I think some of the records got lost, though, because we did plan to actually publish the stats, obviously not. We didn't ask for women's names anyway. We didn't have that information, but ages and how many weeks pregnant and all that kind of stuff. We certainly had that compiled. And certainly women came from all over Ireland. But what the, you know, the representation from different parts of the country was, I don't know. And you were busy when you said lots of them No, no. To be honest, we didn't. I mean, you might get three or four a night. So not not a huge number. Over, over like a two hour period or a three hour period. You might get, and you might only get one. Yeah. And how many hours a day was the phone there? So the phone was staffed twice a week for maybe two hours on a Wednesday evening and maybe three hours on a Saturday afternoon. And that was made public as well? Whenever well, the number, if you, if you rang the number, you got the answer machine, which said when to ring back. Three or four calls a night doesn't sound like much, but six calls a week for 52 weeks a year. Over the 10 years they ran the phone line was 3,120 women who called an anonymous phone line to get basic medical advice. The Women's Information Network was just one of the ways people could find out information on how to travel abroad for abortion services. There was also other services available, like the Open Door, which became Open Line Counselling, and an activist Ruth Riddick operated another counselling line from her home landline. All of these activities were illegal. It was crucial that the phone number got out there as much as possible. Mary Ryder was one of the activists involved in getting the phone number to the public. Every single week we went down to the GPO, every single week, and stood at the GPO handing out leaflets, totally illegally. And we had a slogan, the number was 67947000. And the thing was, you said, 67947000, women have the right to know. And this went, we would shout this out. Etc. And people would come and take, you know, take the leaf. Oh, what are you doing? You know, and just take the leaflets and move on very quickly. And you could see it being folded carefully and put in their pockets, you know. And so people knew we were there. Dublin people would have known. I remember there was a, a woman from Wexford and she said, could I have two leaflets? That's all I'm asking. And she said, I will photocopy them and give them to everybody I know and ask them to photocopy them. So each person had to go along and go off and pay their 10 pence to photocopy the next leaflet. Again, like a telephone tree doing that kind of stuff. So that was something. And then the the numbers went out. That's how we got the numbers out. So that was the, I can't remember though, I was trying to figure it out before I, as I was driving here, Dublin Abortion Information Campaign. Yeah, that's who it is. <laughs> Very good. That was it in the public meetings that we, so we would hold public meetings and we'd have, outside you would have Spook, you'd have youth defence. They were a bit later. They came out of it afterwards. And then you would have the special branch because we were an active political group and we were acting illegally and so on. So if you're postering, because in those days you postered with paste in a bucket, you went around and put them on every traffic box and 
anywhere you could put them, lampposts, anything. But you had to walk around with a big bucket. I mean, how many people walk around town with a big bucket and a, and a paintbrush? So you'd be putting the posters up for various marches or just with the number and things like that. But we, you could be arrested for handing out that information because it was illegal. But what was interesting, I can't remember which TD it was. He was, I think it was one of the workers' party. I'm not so sure. They hadn't gone into the Labour Party at that stage. It was one of the workers' parties. And he read out the number in the doll under doll privilege. And therefore, what we did then was we got a copy of the doll record and we turned it into a poster and put the poster up all over Dublin and sent copies of it all around the country. Because it was doll privilege, nobody could stop you putting that number out because it was just a report. You know, we had a heading, something like uh, report from the doll of the 23rd of April, let's say, or whatever date it was. So you were able to get the, there was ways in which you got the information out that weren't quite the usual. Like, you know, it's quite, when you think of it now, it's so easy on a phone to send stuff to people or it's much more difficult to get it out. So... Was it Prunchy Starossa who did the... It was Prunchy Starossa. You're right. You're right. It was Prunchy Starossa. So if you saw the number and if you could make the call, you could get information on how to travel to the UK for an abortion. As much as a barrier as even getting the phone number was, we also have to remember how difficult it would have been for many pregnant people to make the journey. The cost of air or sea travel was much higher then than it is now. Even if you had the money, public transport outside of Dublin was and remains basically non-existent. And if you got to the airport, Spook could be there waiting for you. Spook used to go to Dublin airport on a Friday evening and they used to come along the queue for the London flights and the Liverpool flights. And they'd come along the queue and say, hello, could we do a little survey? Are you going to England for uh, some reason or whatever it may be? And when you want, I was in a queue and this is how I, I knew about it was when they were asking, I, I was saying to, to my parents, they're going down and they're asking all these women of our age, you know, in our thirties, they're asking them this question and they're skipping so many people. So when they came to us anyway, and they asked, and I said, why are you asking these questions? And they said, uh, are you going for an abortion? They just straight up, are you going for an abortion? So I just, I st- grabbed your woman's arm and I held it up in the air and I said, security, security. And I started screaming, this woman is abusing me. This woman is attacking me, etc. And I really let go, really shouting and shouting. And people turned around and she was saying, excuse me, excuse me, let me go. And I said, I'm not letting you go because you have no right to come up to people in a public venue and ask that. You are going for an abortion. And then she turned into that harridan of... You're a murderer, you're a baby killer, you're this, you're that, the other. Can you imagine if I was, and I wasn't going for an abortion, but imagine if you were going for an abortion. As well as facing an established anti-choice group in Spook, pro-choice activists also faced a new militant anti-abortion group called Youth Defence. Youth Defence were mostly people in their teens and twenties, and they took it one step further and started physically assaulting and intimidating activists. Youth Defence were vicious. You couldn't hold meetings. They'd come in and break them up, physically break them up. I mean, we had a run in with them down on Thomas Street. They had headquarters on Thomas Street and uh, we put a picket on it. It was about 40 or 50 of us. We'd been on a march and we were high as kites. You know, you think change the world today instead of someday in the future. And they came out with huge, big, long batons and sticks and tried to beat the living daylights out of us. They hit a lot of us, but police came. And for the first time, the police intervened on the right side. We were very happy that they did. I can tell you, extremely happy that they did. I don't know where Mary, but Mary Gordon was living, but Alva Smith had them in her garden 
with little white coffins and people, they, they did all those pickets on people's houses. But even the threat of physical violence couldn't stop the young activists from spreading the phone number. Providing information to facilitate travel to the UK was an illegal action. Pro-choice activists were breaking the law and Spook wasn't going to let that slide. Of all the organisations who were spreading the phone numbers, only one had members who were identifiable, the Students' Union. We spoke to Ivana Bacic, who was the president of Trinity Students' Union in 1989 and who found herself at the centre of Spook's legal action. You then have Spook, which then started to take this very proactive legal action against counsellors who were simply giving women counselling where they came in crisis pregnancy and where they looked for a phone number of a clinic. So Spock used the amendment in a way that the, its advocates hadn't predicted would be used. In other words, to close down counselling services. So in 85-86, counselling ser- the big, two big counselling services, the Open Door Counselling run by Ruth Riddick and the Well Woman Clinic, clinics were all all uh, injuncted before the courts and in a, an infamous judgment called the Hamilton judgment judge Hamilton in the high court ruled that it was in breach of the constitutional right of life of the unborn to give information to a pregnant woman that she might use to term in another country to terminate the pregnancy so it was a leap conceptually and interpretively to make this judgment but the Hamilton judgment was upheld by the supreme court and and from 1988 when the supreme court ruled there was no service no entity openly providing information except the students' unions. Those students' unions, like Trinity and UCD, which were mandated to give information, continued to do so in defiance of the law and knowing that we were going to be targeted next. So when people say, why were students' unions targeted? That's why. We were the last line of open, of of any organisation that you could look up in an Irish phone book that was openly offering information. Every other doctor, counselling service, women's information had obviously either been already been injuncted by Spock or were threatened. And, you know, it was going to it would have destroyed them, anyone financially to do so. There was an underground helpline, which was the Women's Information Network. But no, they weren't publicly, you know, nobody knew who officially who was behind them. And their number was only available in the backs of toilet doors or through the Students' Union networks. Because Trinity was city centre location and much more accessible than anywhere else in House 6 or Mandela House, as it was called then, we used to also get a lot more calls from outside of the co- the student community. So one of my most vivid memories, uh, you know, from my election in June of that year, of 1989, was getting, you know, phone calls every day and women calling into our offices in House 6 every day, desperate for information from all over Ireland, young and old. I mean, it was a, it was absolutely shocking for me as a 21-year-old to suddenly be the, the, the person on the end of the line or at the, uh, the other side of the desk. There were two women in my year, myself and Grania Murphy, who was the deputy president and welfare officer. So we saw most of the women who came in. Our other two officers, though, who were in, uh, obviously also in the litigation, Jim Davis and Owen Lonergan, also used to get calls. But we we took most of the calls and saw most of the women. And it was really eye-opening for us. And certainly if we hadn't been pro-choice before, I think we'd have realised then the extent of the need for legal abortion in Ireland once we had that experience. What exactly was distributed? Okay, so you have the actual guidebook that was the subject of the injunction. Uh, And you see it's uh, obviously of its time, pre-internet, pre person computers we laid it out or did we have person i think it was all it was very very uh, low tech in those days so the guidebook i should say is a general guidebook for first years produced by trinity students union there's a very ancient picture of me in it 
wearing a dress that my mother had made, actually. And it was the guidebook for 8990. But I should say that every year the Students' Union produced these freshers' guidebooks, in other words, guidebooks for first years. And it contains in it information about all sorts of things, you know, students and the law, students and sexual harassment, student finances, tenants' rights, all the things that are of interest to students. But the section on pregnancy counselling was obviously the section at issue. Anyway, but you'll see in page 36 of the guidebook, um, we provide the numbers for the Well Woman Centre, even though they weren't then providing information. But crucially, that 794700 number, which was providing the phone numbers of clinics in Britain. And we then also went on to give the numbers of the clinics themselves in Britain, the BPAS clinic, um, the Rally Nursing Home and so on. And also the number of the Irish Women's Abortion Support Group in London, which was a uh, a group of women, Irish Irish origin, uh, first and second generation Irish women living in London, who used to put up women and girls who were travelling from Ireland for abortion and would bring them to clinics and so on. And later when I lived in London, I actually was a member of IWASG and used to help women travelling over for abortion. So we had a very, very informal but very effective organisation in London, which we were referring women to as well. The backs of toilet doors, that was the only other place that you'd find the WIN phone number was on the backs of toilet doors. And we had a, there was a campaign across Dublin particularly, but also at Cork and other urban centres to write the phone number wherever we could. But, you know, uh, but in terms of actually being able to ring an organisation listed in a phone book and get a number, students' unions, were, and only the students' unions with pro-information policy, which wasn't all students' unions, we were the only port of call. So our students' union in Trinity was obviously the most prominent because we had distributed the handbook. We had distributed the handbook earlier than the others because our Freshers' Week was earlier. So we were the only four student officers threatened with prison. The other officers from UCD and the National Union hadn't yet distributed when the court case was heard. Hence, there was a difference. There were 14 of us in the case, including Stephen Grogan. The case is Spock v. Grogan. He was the president of USI and the four Trinity officers were, were among the 14 defendants in the case. And because Trinity was earlier in time, we had the penal notice attached to the court order, that is the threat of jail. We, it wasn't a surprise because we'd had solicitors' letters, but certainly it was the final notice of the court proceedings were served in person. It's all very vivid. All the memories are very vivid of that time. I mean, you know, we mobilised the student body. We had big marches to the courts every day we were up in court. We had a big presence outside on the quays. I have photos at the time, a lot of photos printed in the papers, of course, of all of us and of us outside the courts and of the students you see them surface from time to time in exhibitions of the time. I have a very vivid memory of being in the back of the courtroom and listening to Mary Robinson making the legal argument. We just come in from outside. Mary Robinson acted as legal counsel for the students who were brought to court and she went on to become the first female president of Ireland the very next year. And Catherine McGuinness spoke about being in another courtroom and hearing the chanting from outside as our case was going on inside because we had this great chant, SP, SPU, SPUC, Spock off. And this chant was, we had this, the students outside the chant going the whole time we were inside the courtroom. And Mary Robinson, in her very low-key, very gravelly voice, was making this very, very, at the time, technical and unusual legal argument based on European community law to the judges, to the judge, to Mella Carroll in the first place. So that's a very vivid moment. I can even remember what I was wearing. <laughs> there you were. I was wearing long flowing black culottes and a black T-shirt because that was the only smart clothes I had at the time. <laughs> And a pair of docks, of course. It was the 1980s. Buck v. Grogan, is an, it's an interesting case. It's sort of a footnote happily now because of the you know, subsequent developments and particularly the referendum. But the case concerned 
well, there were a number of procedural issues in the case and there was also the substantive legal issue of whether or not what we were doing was in breach of the constitution. So the procedural issues were around whether, in, in the particular case of the Trinity students, whether we had breached an interim injunction and Judge Carroll re- ruled that there was no evidence that we had or that there was no evidence she was prepared to accept. Spock had offered evidence that they had seen us giving it out the handbook and indeed I think they had sent in people to take the handbook from the named union officers, myself, Grania, Jim and Owen, but that wasn't evidence Malik, Judge Carroll accepted. So so that was how we didn't go to prison. In terms of the more substantive legal argument about the, the merits of the, the permanent injunction, the interlocutory injunction, Mary Robinson had argued that there was a right under European community law to give information on a service in one member state about a service legally available in another member state. And that was the point of law that Judge Carroll felt was arguable and that should be referred to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So the procedure that Mary Robinson was using was a procedure of referral to a senior court, but to a Luxembourg court, of an issue that of an issue of European Community law that had arisen in a in a domestic court, which was in the High Court. So the referral went to the ECJ, which subsequently, as I said, ruled in our favour on the technical point that yes, you have that right, but against us in the, in in practice because we didn't have the commercial link, so we didn't have, as you say, locus standi to rely upon, and so you know that's the costs were awarded against us and we were declared bankrupt and so on. But in the meantime, while the ECJ referral was ongoing, Spock had appealed to the Supreme Court, which ruled in their, here in Ireland, which ruled in their favour. And again, the, that's how the costs ratcheted up to a great extent because costs followed the event in Ireland. So the costs were awarded against us as the losers. There was then a side legal issue about whether the costs should be awarded against us as individuals or as Spock would have preferred, of course, against the Students' Union as an entity which actually had assets. We were all students. We had no assets. And the courts ruled... Um, that the student union had no legal status, wasn't a body incorporated and therefore couldn't be sued, had no legal personality, but it meant that we were personally liable for the costs. So that was held over us for a long time. And of course, our own legal team clearly didn't, you know, didn't get anything from this. This was all Spock's own legal costs that I'm talking about. So so the, there were a, load of, a, lo- a lot of different legal issues in the case. How did you get Mary Robinson as your advisor? An intermediary approached approached us, we were prepared to represent ourselves, not purge our contempt and go to jail. Mary Robinson was representing us and told us we would be and to pack our toothbrushes. I'm really proud of the stance students took because in other countries, it's been women's movements or medical professionals who've led the fight for abortion rights. But in Ireland, it's actually been very much men and women together through the student movement and the student movement, the graduates of the student movement, if you like, over the years. But that's not been a feature in other countries where, as I say, it's much more associated with medical professionals or with or with women's groups but women's groups had been targeted so effectively by Spock and had been closed down that really it fell to the student movement to do it then so it's been a real feature of the Irish campaign over a decade since the late 80s but with its origin in those cases of the late 80s and those student demonstrations the really brilliant student demonstrations and the student chanting and so on so it's great to see new generations of students have always kept that up over the years you know it's, it, that hasn't changed. And that was a big impetus behind the 2018 referendum. The ruling from the European Court didn't have anything to do with human rights and was based solely on the right of the state to advertise services available in another state. Thank you, capitalism. While this case didn't have much of an effect on the day-to-day lives of people who could get pregnant, it did start the conversation again. Would it really be so bad to refer someone to the UK? 
Little did they know at the time, but one of the most infamous court proceedings in the history of Ireland was about to hit the front pages in just two short years and centred around this very point. The X case. We'll tell you all about it next episode. Many thanks to Mary Gordon, Mary Ryder and Senator Ivana Bacic for speaking to us for this episode. If you liked this podcast, we'd love if you shared it with your friends. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on the socials at How the yes Was One for updates on next episodes and we'll be featuring some content associated with each episode. If you enjoyed listening, please consider donating to the Abortion Support Network. Abortion Support Network provides advice on travelling for abortion, financial assistance towards the costs and where needed and where possible accommodation in volunteer homes. They do this for people resident in Ireland, Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, Malta, Gibraltar and Poland. COVID has added extra complications and costs to an already complicated process. Calls from Poland have doubled from 2020. There's a link in the show notes where you can donate to support their clients who need abortions or go to asn.org.uk. How the Yes Was One was researched, produced and edited by Ashton Dolan, Emma Callahan, that's me, Davy Quinlevin, Tara Loney and Deirdre Kelly. Additional recording support from Findwire. See you next time.